When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What up, Cavs Nation? I'm your host, Ethan Sands, and this is another episode of the Wine and Gold Talk podcast. I'm joined by your favorite beat reporter, Chris Fedor. What up, Chris? Ethan, what's going on, bud? How are you? Man, another long day with the Cavs game earlier today against the Spurs, Chris. Let's start there. We got to see Victor Wembanyama against the Cavs for the first time. What were your thoughts of him as a player after getting to see him up close? I'll just borrow a phrase from Donovan Mitchell. He was as advertised. You know, he walked by me. I was talking to Jetty Osman shortly before the game tonight on the court as Jetty just finished up his pregame warmup. And shortly after that, Victor came running out of the tunnel and onto the court and He's gigantic. Obviously, you watch him on TV and you've read all about him and you know that his height is going to be striking. You know that his length is going to be something that you don't usually see. But as Jared Allen said, seeing it in person, it was just a different kind of animal. Ethan, he's awesome. There isn't a thing that he can't do. He's seven foot four, seven foot five. He has guard like skills, block shots block shots that most guys don't even contest played 25 minutes and with him on the court in those 25 minutes the Spurs outscored the Cavs by 17 points so just an impactful dude in every sense of the word I mean we looked at him going up against Jared Allen and Jared's been playing phenomenally well and Victor Weminyama was right up there with them and competing and I mean (laughs) I think Giannis said it earlier this week or this month talking about how there's no way he's seven foot three as listed on any list. I mean, that's the same as Jared Allen being listed as six, nine on ESPN's website. It doesn't make sense. These guys are seven feet and above. Wemby's almost seven foot five has to be like he's humongous. As I've mentioned on multiple podcasts, being a short king standing at five, eight and look it up at somebody that's damn near two feet taller than me is ridiculous and the way that he plays too ethan it almost doesn't make sense he's too smooth how can you be that tall how can you be that long and be that skilled and move like a guard like some of the moves that he was making the spin moves behind the back dribbles between his legs coming off of screens pull up threes from 30 feet away what other seven foot four guy does that It's unbelievable to watch him in person. Some people compare him to Shaquille O'Neal and how Shaq and Yao Ming used to move like tree trunks. And this guy is moving like water, like just flowing through. We saw him do a behind the back into a dunk against the Bucks. Jared Allen actually negated that today with a block of his own, kind of sending Rocket Mortgage Fieldhouse into an uproar. But we've talked about the big man a lot today. So I want to get into Jared Allen and him giving Wemby a tough time or as tough of a time as you can give somebody while also dropping 29 points and 16 boards. 
Do you think J.A. is playing at an all-star caliber right now? I do. There's no doubt about it. But here's the thing, Ethan. Every single year, we look at guys who play like MVPs or we look at guys who play like all-stars, and they don't become all-stars. So yeah, the level that he has played over the last 11 games, the way that he has helped the Cavs navigate this stretch with these injuries... They're eight and three during that stretch, and he's been one of the best big men in the Eastern Conference in the entire NBA over that stretch. It's reaffirming what he's capable of, number one, and it's reaffirming just the kind of impact that he has on this team and the value that he brings to both ends of the floor. It's crazy to think about because we were talking about the voting with Donovan Mitchell being listed as the fourth highest ranked vote getter for the first all-star returns in the backcourt. Yeah. Yeah. And we looking at these lists and you think about the people that Jared Allen would have to win out against. And it's seemingly impossible because he's not in the top 10 votes as of the last update that we have. Well, yeah. I mean, that's the thing. He's not going to be a starter. I think everybody will admit that. The starters in the Eastern Conference, more than likely, are going to be, and it's probably the most deserving three. Maybe you could find an argument for somebody else that I'm not thinking of right now, but it's going to be Giannis, it's going to be Embiid, and it's going to be Jason Tatum. All three of those guys are extremely popular. They lead anybody else by like close to a million votes. (laughs) Yeah, it's ridiculous. And, you know, they're putting up numbers that would make you think they should be starting the All-Star game. So for Jared Allen, it's obvious that his path in, the only realistic path, is as a reserve. And the reserves are picked by coaches. It's not by fans. It's not by players. It's not by media members. It's by coaches. And I think coaches understand the kind of impact that somebody like Jared has. I mean, Jared, a couple of years ago, he was able to get in as an all-star. The problem is, it's not about centers. Like, J.B. Bickerstaff has been using the line over and over and over again that Jared Allen is playing like one of the best centers in the Eastern Conference over the last couple of weeks. It's true. He is. But that doesn't matter in the all-star voting. It's about front court players. So that brings into the equation... Jalen Brown of the Boston Celtics, right? That brings into the equation Julius Randle of the Knicks and Paolo Bancaro of the Orlando Magic. So at most, like if you think about the way that the voting works, there are seven reserve spots. Two guards, three front court players, and then there are two other players at any position which are considered wild cards. So at most, there are going to be five front court players. But I doubt that they get up to five front court players as reserves because there's so many great guards to choose from in the Eastern Conference as well. So if we're trying to be honest about it, we're talking about four probably front court reserve spots. And Jared's got to find a way to sneak in with a mix of Bancaro, Bam Adebayo, Julius Randle, Porzingis, Jalen Brown, Jimmy Butler. He's a six-time All-Star. Hasn't been great this year, but... You can't overlook him and his impact for the Miami Heat when he's healthy and playing. So it could just be a numbers game where Jarrett gets squeezed because there just aren't enough spots for all these really talented front court players in the East. Let's go back to the Cavs specifically for a second. 
we've also seen the bench step up on a consistent basis for the Cavs. And it was seen yet again in the Spurs win that came down to ultimately a timeout not being called by the Spurs at the end and a half-court shot being taken instead. The bench entered today ranking 15th in the NBA for points and 10th for three-point percentage. This is all based on bench standings and stats. Obviously, the Cavs have played musical chairs with bench players in and out of the starting lineup due to injuries, but how would you characterize the Cavs' second unit and the depth of this team? I mean, in some ways, you're right. They have been playing musical chairs with the bench, but the mainstays when it comes to the bench group, those have been consistent. And I think that's important. And Karis kind of talked about this the other night, just being in the same role all season long and the confidence that that gives him and the understanding that that gives him and just the comfort that that gives him. And the same thing when it comes to George Niang. So, you know, when the Cavs set out this offseason and they said, hey, We've got to improve our shooting. We've got to improve our spacing. But they also said we got to improve our bench because that was a glaring problem against the Knicks when they had Emmanuel Quickly and they had Josh Hart coming off the bench. It just got outplayed. Everybody on the Cavs' second unit got outplayed. So, like, they bring in George Niang and they know that he's going to be a stabilizing factor for the second unit. And Karis LeVert, they were committed to keeping him in the six-man role. So they knew they were going to have that as well. And Sam Merrill has been huge off the bench for the Cavs. Even on nights, Ethan, where he doesn't shoot the ball well or he's not making multiple threes, he's still creating a ton of space and a ton of opportunities for his teammate because his presence alone opens up the floor. His presence alone makes the defense have to pay attention to him everywhere he goes. I mean, there was a time earlier today against San Antonio where Donovan Mitchell and Sam Merrill were running a two-man game, and two guys, it's Donovan Mitchell, right? But two guys stayed with Sam Merrill, and Donovan Mitchell was looking around like, oh, okay, I've got a path to the basket, uncontested layup. Like, that's the kind of impact that somebody like Sam can have, and that makes it easier on Levert, right? That makes it easier on George Niang. It makes it easier on Craig Porter Jr. when he's out there in the second unit as well. So it's been really impressive to see the way that this bench group has found an identity and has found a level of consistency that it certainly didn't show last year. And even at the beginning of the year, it wasn't really showing either. Yeah. And you think about it, Chris, like there have been times where Donovan Mitchell and Karis LeVert and even Craig Porter Jr. have found themselves wide open and just surprised how much space they have when Sam Merrill's on the floor because of how much attention he's drawn and how much he moves. Like I just watch Sam sometimes on off ball and watching him run around. And sometimes he's setting pin down screens and people don't realize. And it's like the amount of effort that he's putting in. Remember earlier in the season when he was talking about not getting as much playing time and doing conditioning after games that he felt like he didn't play as much. You see that coming to light now with how much he's been able to move around and just get acclimated with the organization and the team and the offense that they have. It's really, really a testament to what he's been able to do. And I was talking to an executive before tonight's game about that, Ethan, and there is a stat of off-ball cuts per game, the number of off-ball cuts per game. 
I love when we get nerdy. Yes, I love getting nerdy. The league leader in that is, unsurprisingly, Clay Thompson of the Golden State Warriors. Dude basically like runs a marathon every month of the season. Number two in the NBA in that category, Sam Merrill. Number three in the NBA in that category, Max Struess. So the Cavs have two of the top three in terms of off-ball cuts, and that creates gravity, it creates movement, it creates triggers on the offensive end of the floor. And it keeps the Cavs from having to be solely reliant on Donovan Mitchell to create in the high pick and roll, or Darius when healthy to create in the high pick and roll. And it's given some diversity to the Cavs offense, something again that they lacked last year. And I think we would be remiss to not include Tristan Thompson in this conversation too. Because if we're talking about the bench unit and trying to get some stability and some consistency, you don't have to talk about numbers with Tristan Thompson. But there's a consistent energy, there's a consistent effort, there's a consistent professionalism that he brings. And he has given the Cavs throughout the course of this season, and we'll see if it can remain this way throughout the remainder of this season. But so far, he has given the Cavs quality minutes at the backup center spot. And I don't think there were a lot of people that thought Tristan Thompson would be this impactful on the court when the Cavs made that signing. Behind the scenes, sure. Leadership, experience, professionalism, an extension of the coaching staff. You see all of that stuff. You knew all of that stuff when the Cavs went out and signed Tristan. But this isn't just like a behind the scenes guy. This is a guy who is impacting games every time he goes out there for the Cavs. Right, and we've seen lineups with Donovan, Struess, Merrill, Tristan, and either Niang or whoever at the four. Yeah, it's like you obviously can feel the difference of Tristan and Jarrett, but you don't feel it as much on like the rebounding aspect because Tristan just gets after it. He is somebody that is a hound for rebounds and also just an energy guy. Like they say that Jarrett talks a lot on the court, but you can physically and visually see Tristan talking, Tristan arguing with refs, communicating with teammates. Like that is something that you can't equate on a box score. Like that's something that he brings that not a lot of other Cavs players can bring, especially when like you see Max Struess doing that a good amount of the time. He's very communicative. And when he's out, Somebody else steps in and takes that role over. And a good amount of the time, it's Tristan. And this is the right role, too, for Tristan. At this stage of his career, given how old he is, and he hates when I say that to him, by the way. But this is the right role for him. Play him in short little bursts, usually one each half, maybe two if you want to push it a little bit, where he can just go all out in those minutes and not have to worry about foul trouble, not have to worry about burning himself out because he's needed, right? The Cavs are strong enough up front. They have enough depth in the front court where they can just allow Tristan to just go all out in those short bursts. And because of that, he is very, very effective in those short bursts. All right, last question before we take a break. Are you concerned at all about the late game limitations that the Cavs have had? Obviously, today might have been a different story because of the Paris trip tomorrow or today that they got onto the flight four and all those different things. But it seemed like late game situations, the Cavs are always on the wrong end of the stick when it comes to 
their production in the latter minutes of the game. Yeah, I mean, I think it's something that is worth continuing to monitor as the season goes on. Because, look, if you're going to be in a playoff push towards the end of the season, if you're going to make it to the playoffs and be in a seven-game series, oftentimes those games do come down to crunch time. And it's about execution. It's about valuing possessions. It's about understanding what you want to do offensively and defensively. It's about attention to detail and and things along those lines. They certainly aren't the best clutch team in the NBA that belongs to the Milwaukee Bucks. But it's like, it's not a situation where I'm sitting here saying that, like, they don't have the means to make it better. You know what I'm saying? Like, Donovan Mitchell, throughout the course of his career, has been a closer type player. He has been somebody who has shined in those kinds of moments. I just think that the Cavs, Ethan, and this isn't an excuse, they've got to be better in clutch time situations, but I just think they're working through some things and they're trying to figure things out in those kinds of situations. What's their pet set in those moments? Who do they want the ball in the hands of? Can they go ISO in those situations? Or would they be better off running some pick and roll stuff? Would they be better off putting the ball in the hands of Jared Allen at the elbow and and running triggers off of him? I just think that the Cavs are working through those things and trying to figure out those kinds of answers. And in part, that's what the regular season is about. And sometimes that means failing in those moments to see what works, what doesn't work. It has been problematic. Their net rating in clutch time is 22nd in the NBA. Their offensive rating in clutch time, I believe, is 28th in the NBA. The only two teams worse, Detroit and Washington. So it's something that the Cavs have to figure out. But you feel like they have the components and the types of players that would allow them to be successful in those moments. All right, we're going to take a quick break. But when we come back, We're going to talk about the Cavs heading to France. But before then, become a Cavs insider and interact with Chris and I by subscribing to Subtext. Let us know which Cavs player you would most like to tour the city of Paris with. Sign up for a 14-day free trial or visit cleveland.com backslash Cavs and click on the blue bar at the top of the page. If you don't like it, that's fine. All you have to do is text the word stop. It's easy, but we can tell you that the people who sign up Stick around, because this is the best way to get insider coverage on the Cavs from myself and Chris. This isn't just our podcast. It's your podcast. And the only way to have your voice heard is through subtext. We'll be right back. All right, we're back. Chris, ironically, we just got done talking about probably the most prolific France player to come out since... I don't know. Tony Parker? Gobert, Tony Parker. So now we're talking about the Cavs going to France and what that means for them and the game of basketball. I wanted to ask you about where the Cavs are right now in the East heading into that matchup. They're fourth in the Eastern Conference, and from the fourth to the eighth spot is extremely tight, like a game to half a game tight. Darius Garland and Evan Mobley won't be returning until possibly late January and February. The Cavs are 8-3 over the last 11 games since their injury announcements. How crucial is it for the Cavs to keep up their success until these star players get back, especially with having to play teams like Milwaukee multiple times at the end of the month? 
Ethan, is not even so much until these guys get back. To me, it's it's going to be a war just to avoid the play-in tournament in the Eastern Conference. Because look, if we're being honest, I was talking to an executive about this before the game. The Knicks aren't going anywhere. That trade for OG Ananobi was great. Isaiah Hartenstein is balling, replacing Mitchell Robinson. Now, the Knicks are kind of thin, and if they have to tap into their depth because they have an injury and they don't ever seemingly get injured, then it could be a different equation. But they're 21 and 15, and I think they're going to play better basketball as the season goes on because OG is such an impactful player, and he has filled in the gaps of what they needed, especially on the defensive end of the floor. So the Knicks aren't going anywhere. The Indiana Pacers still have a historically great offense. Tyrese Halliburton's an MVP candidate. I don't see them just completely crumbling. The Miami Heat, too prideful, too talented, too well-coached, too much depth. They're 20 and 15 right now. Like, they're going to be in the mix, too. Like, we can sit here and we can look at the Eastern Conference and talk about Boston, Milwaukee, and Philadelphia and how those three teams have separated themselves. To me, the intrigue comes, which team is going to fall out of four, five, six and have to fight, like, a talented team, like a really, really good team, which one of those is going to have to fight their way into the playoffs via the play-in tournament? So yeah, the Cavs, part of the reason, Ethan, to me, the reason why this stretch was so important is because it allowed the Cavs to bank wins. And we understand in the NBA, there are going to be ups and downs. There are going to be stretches where the schedule isn't as favorable. You're going to lose some games that maybe you should win. So the Cavs banking wins and beating up on the teams that they should beat up on has allowed them to be in a good enough position where if they do go through a bad stretch, it's not going to completely tank their season and drop them out of the playoff mix, which, again, that's going to be a fight until the very, very end of the season just to stay in the top six in the Eastern Conference. And I think that's something to look forward to. Like, you always want a dogfight. Like, that's always when the best team arises and then, you get a team like the Miami Heat who dug their way from the play-in tournament to the finals. Like, obviously, we don't think that the Cavs have that same possibility if they have to go through that juggernaut, but we'll have to wait and see. And like Chris always says, you never say never in the NBA. (laughs) And the thing that is good, too, a lot of these guys need to go through those experiences, right? They need to fight in March and April and they need to play playoff-like games. The more of those, the better this young team is going to be for them. You got to get a little bit of metal. You got to get a little bit battle-tested. You got to see how you perform when the intensity cranks up and when you're playing for something that matters. The last time we saw the Cavs in a situation, Ethan, where they were playing for high-stakes, pressure-packed environment, they didn't handle it well. It was the playoff series against the New York Knicks. Now I'm excited to see if the Cavs do have to fight the way that I expect them to, to stay in the top six in the Eastern Conference. It's not the playoffs. We understand that. It's not a seven-game series, but it's higher stakes than December, January basketball. And how they handle those kinds of things, I think, will be informative when it comes to assessing what kind of run they can make in the playoffs if they get there. All right, Chris. 
Now to the fun stuff. There have been three regular season global games over the past two years, and the Cavs traveled to Paris to play in the first of 2024. How do you think the NBA global games have helped grow the game of basketball? Well, it goes back years and years and years, but just... I mean, remember what we talked about on the podcast the other night? Which part? We talked about a lot of things. If you're making a list of the top 10 players in today's NBA, more than half are from outside the United States, probably. I mean, that just tells you the the reach of basketball. And I think it's only going to continue to grow by doing these kinds of events and bringing a different audience and bringing the game to these different places. Just to get a little nerdy again, the NBA Global Regular Season game started all the way back in 1990 with a game between the Phoenix Suns and the Utah Jazz. The first preseason global game was in 1984 between the Suns and the then New Jersey Nets. Obviously, these trips can also come with stress and all those other things because of the international flights and traveling and that such nature. A couple days before the game, they also have off. So I want to ask you a more fun question. Who do you think will enjoy their time the most in Paris? My mind immediately, Ethan, goes to guys who wouldn't normally go there, right? Like Donovan Mitchell has been there a bunch for Adidas events. Karis LeVert was in Paris the night free agency opened in the summer. Darius Garland is going, I believe, for the first time. I was talking to him before the game tonight, and it's going to be his first time. So to me, it's like the first timers, Sam Merrill's of the world. Like, how often are they going to go to Paris? Dean Wade, who's from like the smallest town in in Kansas. Like those kinds of guys who probably won't be going to Paris a lot throughout the remainder of their careers or when their careers are over, I would believe that they'll make the most of it and they'll probably enjoy it the most. And then there's just Jared Allen, who I'm sure has done a ton of research on everything Paris related, done a ton of reading on it just so that he can be as knowledgeable as possible for the experience. He said he's got two books for the flight to Paris and I am betting good money that at least one of them is like France for dummies. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, he is such a goofball that after the game, he's asked what he's most looking forward to when it comes to going to Paris. It's Paris, right? There's shopping. There's cuisine. There are different things that you can go see. The Louvre, the Eiffel Tower. And this goofball says, I'm looking forward to the flight. Like, come on. He is a goober. That is for sure. He is one of one. And (laughs) and that's so real, too. Like, that's who he is. He just wants to be on this long flight, on this comfortable, laid flat bed. And he wants to read his books and and build computers and, and play video games and stuff like that. But I just couldn't believe that he said, I'm most looking forward to the flight. Like, yo, dude, they have the Eiffel Tower, they have the Louvre, they have all these cool things, and you're excited to go on a plane. As somebody who's seven feet, I wouldn't think you'd be excited for a flight. Like, I don't know how much they can accommodate you being like six foot five guys, six foot eight guys, maybe. But, sir, you are seven feet tall. You can only get so long. Jared Allen is definitely one of one. That's a great way to describe it because there is none other than Jared Allen. But... Final question of the night, circling back to the game that is going to be played on Thursday. How do you think the Cavs match up against Brooklyn? 
Well, Brooklyn stinks. <laughs> I don't think Brooklyn's very good. Their roster doesn't make a whole bunch of sense to me. They're so hit and miss. They've lost one, two, three, four, five. Six of their last seven games, including to Portland? Like, what? You lost to Portland on Sunday? And they didn't have DeAndre Ayton? I'm not sure. Like, they had Duop Reith starting, the Portland Trailblazers, and, and the Nets lost to that team. So I think the Cavs match up very, very well. And if they can keep focused on the game itself, which is hard to do in, in these kinds of environments when you have so many other responsibilities and you have so many other events going on. It should be one where the Cavs capitalize on an opportunity against a wounded, not very good basketball team. I think that sums it up. And with that, that'll wrap up today's episode of the Wine and Gold Talk podcast. But remember to become a Cavs insider and interact with Chris and I by subscribing to Subtext. Go ahead and let us know who you think is going to have the most fun in Paris. Sign up for a 14-day free trial or visit cleveland.com backslash Cavs and click on the blue bar at the top of the page. If you don't like it, that's fine. All you have to do is text the word STOP. It's easy. But we can tell you that the people who sign up stick around because this is the best way to get insider coverage on the Cavs from myself and Chris. This isn't just our podcast. It's your podcast. And the only way to have your voice heard is through subtext. Y'all be safe. We out.